the real question is how do you prepare in the case that you get audited? Mm. And that would be making sure you're working with a CPA that is advising you correctly, that you're you're taking deductions you're entitled to, and that you have the proper documentation in place. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today, I'm going to be talking to Eric Freeman, who is a CPA, personal CPA for a very good mentor of mine, Ken McElroy. For those of you who have not heard of Ken McElroy, I'm very surprised you haven't, especially if you're on this channel, we talk about him a lot. He is uh, Robert Kiyosaki's, he's part of his advisory team for real estate. And Ken McElroy is, a, is an amazing syndicator working predominantly in multifamily, but also does a lot of other things as attached to real estate. He's got his own mastermind and all that good stuff. So I would recommend you checking Ken McElroy out. And today we are lucky to have Eric Freeman, who is helping Ken McElroy save a lot of taxes. So we'll, we'll just learn, learn a little bit about, about his strategies, not Ken's strategy, but Eric's strategy and how he helps people like Ken save taxes, and people who are not like Ken also save taxes. Eric, without further ado, welcome to the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks so much. Super glad to be here. And and this is one of my favorite topics because people often don't want to talk about taxes, but they also don't realize that it's probably your biggest or at least one of your biggest expenses of your lifetime. So it's kind of important to understand. I think it's also, so I look at taxes, taxes are two different ways. One is it's your biggest expense, you're right. But I think tax saving is also, chances are for most people, it's the biggest ROI on the investment, right? So you have to to start looking at both ways because there are ways you can invest and you get tax write-offs. And usually those write-offs are immediate ROI, which which you have to start factoring in because they, they matter. We're going into the details. Help me understand your journey into this world of taxes. Did you always want to be a CPA, buddy? Actually, no, not even close. It's one of those things where life kind of takes turns and you kind of roll roll with the punches. But in college at the University of Arizona, but I had always wanted to really my goal in studying accounting was because I wanted to be an investor, be an entrepreneur. And, you know, you can't really teach a lot of a lot of the things that you need for that. But the one thing that every business and investor needs to understand is accounting and finances. Without knowing your numbers, you you don't know if you're profitable. You don't know if you're doing well. You don't know how to measure success right. or failure. So that's why I started studying it. And uh, so, but by the time I graduated, got my master's, I, I needed some money at the time. So I started working in public accounting. And my passion, though, was real estate. I had read you know, a lot of, you know, the rich dad books, you know, and Mac right. was included while I was in college. Right. And so I was very into real estate. So while I was working as a full-time CPA, I started investing in real estate on the side, basically worked seven days a week. So when I wasn't at the office, I was looking at properties. Then I realized that I actually enjoyed public accounting a lot more than I anticipated because for me, a lot of it is the connection. So the people that I get to work with are very successful. I get to learn and see the most intimate parts of their lives and businesses. I mean, sometimes their spouse doesn't even understand what they're doing, right? Now, you know, intentionally, it's just, you know, there's a lot going on. So I found that it helped me grow in all these other areas. 
And so I think of everything I do as everything's related. So when I invest in real estate, I'm often working with some of the same people that I'm helping on the tax side and okay. vice versa. No, I think, I think Eric, you're right, man. Having access to, it's like an X-ray vision into their mind of how some of these successful people are looking at it. Sometimes you even ask the question, they won't be able to tell you why they did what they did. Once you start looking at the taxes, you start looking at how it's how they're putting the pieces of puzzle together and you can reverse and generate not just for yourself, but hopefully in someone in your capacity for your other clients as well, which is what I like being in your role. I, I want a big disclaimer before we get into it, because I know a lot of people get excited about taxes and they may just blindly jump into anything that we talk about today. So I want to make a big, big disclaimer. This show is not a CPA show. I'm definitely not a CPA. And Eric, while he's a CPA, is not your CPA. So you want to take a look at, take a look, whatever we're talking about in this uh, show, take it with a grain of salt. It's really for education purposes. But if you want to, and if you want to have a further conversation and discuss your personal situation, you're more than welcome to contact Eric or take the learnings that you have on this podcast and share it with your CPA and see how they can take, they can take those learnings and try to figure out how they can implement it. And if they can implement it, but you have heard on this show, it's definitely time to upgrade your CPA. And that's where someone like Eric comes in, right? Because the strategies that Eric is talking about, they're not theoretical. The strategies that he and I are going to talk about, they exist. Someone in the world is using them. Uh, we just have to figure out, can they apply to you, right? That connection has to be made. And sometimes your current CPA may or may not be able to do that. Not because they are not, not because they're trying to hide something from you. It's because they may just not have learned these strategies. Right. It's really as simple. Eric, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. That was a great disclaimer because one of the one of the things I always say is some of my clients they make fun of me because my answer to a lot of their questions is it depends because I usually have to continue asking them questions to figure out what their goal is in a transaction or doing something to see if it actually makes sense to to implement a certain tax strategy because there may be a better one depending on what their goals are. And, and you kind of touched on it perfectly as far as, you know, having a CPA, you know, choosing your CPA is incredibly important. And there's a lot of different things you can do to make a better choice. And one of them is, you know, something you touched on, which I would, I would say is assessing your needs. Do you need a larger firm with more expertise or, or, or is your taxes relatively simple? And do you need someone that's maybe not as expensive, but, and, you don't need as much technical knowledge. So just finding the right type and then going down from there, if you need specific knowledge, say you're working in a specific area, you want to find a CPA that has experience in that area. Um, and then I'm always a big fan of referrals. If you have someone with, like if you're a business owner and you have other friends that are business owners, they probably have similar issues. So getting referrals from friends, it's kind of like, it's almost like interviewing an employee, right? You don't know. You go in and talk to a CPA, they could tell you whatever they're going to tell you. It doesn't mean they're going to perform well, but when you have a referral and you have someone that said, yes, they have done great for me, then that that's a that means a lot. Right. No, I completely agree. So I think it's most people don't pay attention to a CPA because I know I didn't for the longest time because uh, my go-to CPA was H&R Block. Then I very quickly realized there's a huge difference between planning for taxes and filing for taxes, right? Huge difference. And I think the advantage, Eric, what at least I have learned throughout my professional life now is it's in the planning because 
you can go to a tax preparer and save a lot of money, which is fine. But if you're not planning for taxes, tax preparation, which is tax filing, is really just a formality. It's the it's the uh, memorialization of your plan for that. All right, that's how I look at it. It's really just checking the boxes, writing the documents, but all the strategic thinking and all the critical thinking was applied in the planning. And for that specific reason, you can't plan on December 31st for the year that has gone by. Right. And what do, what do most people do for taxes is, I'm using H&R Block as an example, but there are other tax preparers as well. They go to them on April 1st next year to file the, to help them now save the taxes for last year. Even if you're doing an H&R Block, please don't do that approach. At least figure out a strategy before. But also, if you're really in a position where you want to start looking at taxes as a more strategic thing rather than a tactical thing, you want to start talking to someone like Eric early on. I think that's a good introduction. So why don't we go into, when we start thinking about tax planning, how do you, when you're talking to people and your client, they're coming to you, I know you're probably getting W-2s, you're getting real estate investors, you're getting business owners, you're getting retired people, you're getting a lot of different flavors of people who are trying to look for taxes, tax help from you. So how are you thinking about tax planning? How do you segment these different people? Are you seeing similar problems saying that, you know what, I can bucketize all, doesn't matter what your situation is, everyone's a butterfly, makes sense, everyone's unique. However, here the common picture that everyone has and you can either fit in bucket one or bucket two or bucket three, at least as a starting point, and then you go deeper into that analysis. So how do you approach it? Yeah, no, there's definitely different commonalities, and buckets is a good way to describe it. And then you can have your set, you know, these this is a basic plan of action, and then you can kind of go from there. So the first step is really figuring out what are current sources of income and deductions? How are things organized? Are you a business owner? Are you an employee? What investments do you have? Figuring out all the basics. That's the first step. And the second step is, okay, now that I know what today looks like, what do you as the client expect tomorrow? What are you trying to achieve here? For example, um, you know, I have, there's a lot of say W2 earners um, that want to get more invested in real estate. And maybe they've started some, um, but now they're they're starting, their income from real estate is starting to grow and potentially exceed their W-2. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do going forward? So based on knowing where they're heading, the plan is going to start to morph into trying to take advantage of what the future could look like. So it's kind of looking in a crystal ball in some ways, but I would say that the buckets as a W-2 earner, you're an employee, I'd call that, you know, one bucket. And that one is where you probably have, frankly, the least potential for tax planning. There are some things you can do, but none of them are going to get you to zero taxes likely unless you're a very low earner. I want to be, you know, you have your typical, are you taking advantage of 401k and other retirement accounts, you know, traditional IRA accounts, are you contributing to an HSA account? All of those basic things, taking advantage of credits that are available, like American Opportunity Tax Credit, which is education credit if you have, if you or your children are going to college. So taking advantage of all of those. But again, you're probably not going to get to zero if you, if you're a medium income individual or couple. And then I'd say the next bucket is the business owner or, or more, I'd say self-employed. 
And so that's someone that has a business, but they probably have few employees. So they're doing a lot of the work themselves. For example, say you were attorney that just worked with you and maybe you had an administrative person, but you were pretty much a one-man shop. You're self-employed. I'd say you have a little more potential in the sense that there's a lot more deductions you can take. You know, you can deduct anything related to the business and you can also start to take deductions that would have been what we call below the line on the tax return. So you potentially limited as an individual and you move them above the line, like self-employed health insurance. Now you can deduct health insurance against... So let's see, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to quickly pause you and then we'll come back to it because you mentioned something I want to talk about is above the line, below the line. What does that, where does the line mean? Yeah. Good, good question. So it's a, it's refers to the line on the tax return called adjusted gross income. And what that line is, is it's essentially all of your income that the IRS is going to tax, which is essentially any source of income, unless the IRS says it's not taxed. So generally it's everything, less your deductions that are above the line, which again, it's only deductions that the IRS allows you to have. Got it. And then that gets you to your adjusted gross income. So anything below that line would mean that it has a direct impact on reducing an adjusted gross. That's above the line. Exactly. Which will then later on reduce your tax indirectly. But versus below the line, those are called itemized deductions. And those are often limited severely. So for example, your real estate and state income taxes are capped at $10,000 right now. So if you pay $50,000 in state and real estate taxes, you can only deduct 10. It's limited. But if you can figure out a way to move those taxes above the line, now you could potentially get a full benefit. So for example, you know, having a home office and now deducting your real estate taxes on your principal residence above the line against the business instead of as an itemized. So that's one way you can do that. So that's why itemized deductions are generally worth, worth less than above the line deduct. Perfect. So I think, so I think as, as a broad stroke, and then we'll talk, we'll go back to the segmentation we were going through. As a broad stroke, if you want deductions, if you want your expenses to be, con- so if you want, and if you want your daily expenses, business expenses to be somehow accounted for above the line, that's a preferable classification than doing it below the line. Is that is that fair? Now, I, I was being very careful in using the term personal expenses because you cannot bring the personal expenses above the line. Chances are even below the line. You have to figure that out and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I wanted to make sure I, I hesitate in using the term personal expenses unless you classify them appropriate and they're the they're ethically and morally and from IRS classifications could be determined as a business expense. So we'll talk about that. So we'll go back. So you talked about employee, least amount of deductions available. And we talked about self-employed, a little bit more opens up of the world of savings, uh, tax savings open up. What are the other classifications? And and real quick before I go into the other ones, I just add the negative of being self-employed is an additional, the additional self-employment tax. Correct. So you pay full SC tax, which is 15.3% on top of the income tax versus as a W-2 earner, you just pay half. So you get more deductions, but on your net, you're going to pay a higher. And I think that that's an important point. That's a very important point because this is where the math comes in. Whether let's say you were thinking of switching it from being in a fully employed to being an independent contractor and let's say your employer is okay with that. You have to do the math behind it. 
is does it make sense to do it or not? Because while you may, while some of the deductions may open up, you have an extra self-employment tax. Seven and a half percent is that, Eric? Basically, seven point six five is. There you go. I, I love being. I love talking to CPAs. Very precise. Seven point six five percent. So that's really an extra thing, right? So if you're making fifty k, and you're not, and your expenses are only thousand dollars, you have to start asking the question. But if you're making fifty k and your expenses are forty five thousand. Um, it's a different, it could be a very different answer, right? So you have to really do the math behind it. Does it make sense or not? That's why you want to work with a CPA like Eric to give you that math because not everyone, not everyone is left or left brain oriented as Eric. Uh, some of us are right brain. All right, Eric, let's go next step. Category I would say is I would differentiate it from self-employed to business owner. And so when I say a business owner, I'm thinking someone that is not as involved in the day-to-day so they have employees or it's very capital intensive and the difference between that and self-employed is what we just talked about the business owner a lot of times doesn't have to pay the extra self-employment tax on their earnings but they still get all the deductions allowed to them so that's the big differentiator there so just think of a business you know with multiple employees that are helping generate revenue you could take you know a restaurant for example you have your cook right. and your waitresses and the hostess and all your equipment all of that is generating the end not necessarily you you may have to manage and oversee it but a lot of the income is generated by the these other resources and then the last category i would call uh in fact you know for investors which is more passive type income whether it's investing in stocks or dividend stocks or interest income or even investing passively yeah. real estate syndications or other business. So in that that category can be very beneficial in the sense that you get all the deductions related to the various businesses or real estate investments that you're in. And you also get a lot of preferential rate. For example, qualified dividends have a capital gains rate, which is a maximum of 20% versus the maximum ordinary tax rate that a W-2 earner would have is 37%. And you don't have any self-employment tax on any of those. So if you if you take the SC tax of 15.3 plus the 17% benefit, you know, you're actually paying 30% plus less tax just by making those types of investments and having your income come from those sources versus being an active employer, a self-employed individual. So uh, let me just quickly summarize that. And I think a lot of the audience here is familiar with Robert Kiyosaki's work. So to give you a visual representation of the different segmentation that it just went through, he's basically talking about the EBSBI model, which is on the left side of the of the quadrant, a vertical quadrant, talking about employee and self-employed. And then you go on the right-hand side, the right top right side quadrant, that's a B. And then it's uh, it's the I as an investor. So if you want to remember that, and as you go from E to I, your access to tax saving increases in some cases exponentially. That's really have to put that frame of reference when you're thinking about it, because as an employee, everything that you're doing is an active and you really don't have a whole lot of way to reclassify the income. There are ways to do that. And we're going to talk about that. At least we'll touch about it because the topic of tax savings and tax planning is so broad. And we'll see if Eric is, if Eric still likes me at the end of the podcast, we'll probably do a more deep dive uh, webinar for the audience and see if that helps you get a little bit more clarity. The goal is to move from 
move the income from E to I. And I'm using that word very, very carefully. You may you may want to still do exact what you're doing, but now you're trying to figure out how do I get more and more of my income moved in the investor bucket. So Eric, with that, let's say let's say to our friend to our W2 employees right now, is there a way for them to reclassify or maybe add on a different stream of income through investment or through businesses or through other passive sources, which can help them access some tax benefit? Is that possible at all? Yeah, it definitely is. So you can take different route. The question really comes down to how hard do you want to work? Because you know that that's kind of the reality. So I would say there's two major choices you can make. It could be you either have some kind of active business on the side that you start doing whatever it is. And if you do that, it opens up and I would say it converts you're able to convert what were personal expenses into business expenses a lot of times, including, I mean, this this could include travel, it could include meals, it could include expenses. For- as simple as your cell phone, right? It could be as simple as self because as an employee, don't sell out, just cell phones, not computers, all of it, even uh, business mileage, deducting, taking auto expenses, potentially, if you set things up correctly. And what's cool about converting personal expenses into deductible ones is you may not actually be increasing your outflow of cash to do that because if you can make your auto deductible, but you already have an auto because you need it anyway, you you didn't increase your expense, but you did increase your deduction. So now you you have more in your pocket at the end of the day after those tactics. So so that's a great a great strategy. And then plus, if you know, hopefully you make it a successful business, that's more revenue in the first place, and then you'll have basically everything directly associated with that business will be. So I think that's one of the best ways. However, it takes more work, obviously. You have to find something and you have to put effort in and you basically are active. Now you can partner with someone and, and you know do it a lot of different ways, but it's not something where you set it or forget. The other way is that, I, that you could invest passively, take your earnings from, from your W-2 or your self-employed earnings and invest it with other people or other businesses. And a lot of times if you're making investments, you may not pay any tax on on those just because of all the write-offs. But it also is tough when you're investing passively and you have active income. You generally cannot offset losses from the passive passive bucket with your active income. So so it's not necessarily going to reduce your W-2 taxes right now you just may not pay tax on that investment until so, you sell or dispose of it. Eric, that, that, that's a very important point. And I think I would ask you to segment something a little differently because we just segmented different types of individuals, right? They could be an employee, they could be a self-employed person, they could be a business owner, and they could be an investor. Or I think Robert Kiyosaki is also calling them insiders now. So there's this four different buckets. That's one. I think there's another way of doing a segmentation on income, correct? That's where I think that's an important distinction for people to understand what is active and what is passive, because I could say stocks are passive, but that's not how, uh, at least if I'm not trading, I just put my money into a stock market uh, through my own and I'm not necessarily trading. I don't think IRS considers that as uh, not, not, a, not that I don't think 
I, I know IRS doesn't consider it as passive, even though it's passive. So help us understand those classification of different income types. So people can wrap their brain around, even if they're employees, how to look at that is the income that they're making, is it active or passive or other categories? Definitely. So that's so what you were describing. It's, you're right. It's generally not passive. It's called portfolio, right? So portfolio income is interest dividends, and usually capital gains. The capital gains only from only from stocks, correct. So that's, that's one bucket. And then you have your passive bucket versus your active bucket. Basically, you to be active, you have to do what's called materially participating. And the IRS has these seven factors that they use to determine whether you materially participate. And essentially, if you meet any one of them, then you're deemed to materially participate and it's active. And so that would be, so the, the main factors are you participate at least a hundred hours in a year and more than anyone else. That's really easy if you're starting up a business and you're the only employee or you spend 500 hours in an activity. There, There's a few others and there's a facts and circumstance based one basically that says, hey, based on all the facts and circumstances, you're essentially putting your time and efforts into this on a regular basis. So if you meet that, it's active. And if you don't meet that, then it's generally passive. And the reason it matters is because active income is deductible. Well, if you have a loss, it's deductible against other active income. So that's the distinction between active and passive. It generally matters when you're talking about losses. As far as income, they are generally taxed at the same rates, depending on what it is. So it could still be ordinary income rates if it's a business that you're passive in versus active. It's still going to be ordinary rates. It really matters whether you can take losses against other and and then and then I would I would almost put capital gains in another category also because it, it sometimes is portfolio and then it's sometimes not. It, you know, they don't make it simple. I would but the benefit of capital Yeah, exactly. It it keeps EPAs with jobs. Of course. But the capital gains you get a lower rate. So anything you can push into that capital gains category, that's where you're getting rate preference. The negative is if you have a cap loss, those are severely limited. So those you don't want generally. You want active losses and passive or capital gain income is generally what you're trying to achieve from a tax perspective. Wait, wait, wait. Let, let's let's repeat that for a second. So I thought you were saying that maybe I heard it incorrectly. You're saying passive income is taxed similar than active income. So why do we want more passive income? If they're taxed Similarly, so well, I mean, in the sense, I guess what I mean by that is you don't want passive losses. Got it. Like real losses, you may get, you may get the phantom losses, the depreciation losses are okay, correct? Right, they're okay, but you'd rather if you have a net passive loss from everything, really, then it gets trapped and you can't use it until you have other passive income. Yeah. So you'd rather, if you're going to generate t- tax losses, you'd rather it be from if sources. Is it to offset your income in the current year? That's why I say if you can generate phantom losses that are active, that is ideal. And and I say phantom because of exactly what you said, depreciation. So the common one, kind of jumping around, but the common one is real estate. You can depreciate real estate, but over the long run, most real estate generally is actually appreciating. So create a loss, offset other income, and then you're in a a pretty good tax situation. 
but I will say that real estate is by default passive. So you have to be careful with that trickier requirements. Correct. I was just going to say that. I think, I think what I, what I don't want people to think to see if you got 10 rental properties by default, you can take the depreciation or apply it in your active income bucket. There are ways to do it. And we, I don't think we'll have the time to cover all of those ways here, but there's definitely ways to look at you qualify. Some cases you may be able to, but in some cases, so the answer is as Eric, his favorite Eric's answer, it depends. Um, and it does depend. But exactly. I think Eric, also there, there are certain investment types which can, even though the loss, even their passive involvement, but the losses that are being generated are, uh, you can use it to offset the act. Do you want to talk some of those like oil and gas and stuff like that? Yeah, there's there's some of those exceptions because I mean essentially, you know, like everything, the government is incentivizing certain things, right? So yeah, there's there's exceptions for for like oil and gas. There's some of the exceptions we were, you know, that that we won't go into too much detail on the real estate side, where if you meet certain easier requirements, you can actually take losses against against those. The general rule for passive type income is or passive losses is it can only offset passive income. So one strategy that's really helpful if you are going to have passive losses from something is to find something that will generate passive income to offset it, because then you'll have tax sheltered income. So for example, if you have one activity, you've made an investment and you know, you're going to have huge write-offs from this activity. And then you find another investment and you can be passive and it's going to generate a lot of income. Well, you could invest in that one with income and it's not going to affect your taxes in the current year because you have an offset this other passive loss. So I would say for most people, that's probably the best strategy for utilizing those passive losses. The other the others are very specific on on very specific investments that that you'd have to be in essentially. I I love this topic, man. I think I think I could talk to you for like another five hours, and we won't still be done. Sir, I do want to talk about one specific thing. You know, there's at my investors keep coming back to me. Even my friend, they're like, should I just open up an LLC and say I start saving taxes, right? So and 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 I have my answer. But as a CPA, if I come to you like, you know what, I have this rental property. It's in my name now. As, leaving asset protection topic completely completely out because creating an LLC could be a right reason to do. Just because you have an LLC, does it mean you have access to more tax savings than you didn't? I, I love that question because people ask that all the time. Basically, I mean, it's hard to leave out asset protection because that's basically the reason to do it. It's not like IRS defines it based on what you're doing and what the activity is, what your income source is, and that's how they come up with what you can deduct or not deduct. Now, there are nuances to how you can get those deductions based on different entity types for a business that you have. So, I mean, you can make decisions between an LLC, an S-corp, a corporation. The way you're taxed will be different. But if you're talking a rental property and an LLC versus not having an LLC, there's basically no difference, especially because an LLC, if you're the only owner for tax purposes, the IRS disregards it, meaning it doesn't exist for tax purposes. It's only a legal entity. So it, it literally changes nothing as far as how you report it. Now, if you have multi-member LLCs, it's a partnership. But again, if it's a business, you still get the deductions, whether it's in a partnership or it's 
on your individual return. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Eric, another one that I always get asked is, uh, so we're going to end with a few questions here. One of the, that I always ask is if I'm, if I'm taking these deductions, my probability of audit goes high. Do I open myself up to more risk? Because especially for, let's my let's say my W-2 friends, they've been filing W-2 for last 15 years and they've been paying 30, 40% taxes. And all of a sudden, in their mind, I think we're giving IRS too much credit. But anyways, in their mind, all of a sudden, current year, I'm at 5% tax bracket because I work with someone like Eric and they were helped they were able to help restructure some of my things and now have access to more. So does that now open up for audit because my 15 years of tax returns were at 30, 40, 50% and now I'm at 5%. How do, how do you help them, help some of those folks understand that I don't think IRS have that many resources or, or the agents are that sophisticated that they're going to look at the track record of 15 years and everything. Even if they did, the approaches we're talking about, it's not necessarily the reason why you get audited. Yeah, no, I would almost take the IRS's faults completely out of the equation because I would say it's more about getting the deductions you're entitled to and paying the correct amount of tax or no tax. It's not about, you're not cheating anyone, at least not if you're working with a legitimate CPA, right? So the real question is, how do you prepare in the case that you get audited? And that would be making sure you're working with a CPA that is advising you correctly, that you're you're taking deductions you're entitled to, and that you have the proper documentation in place because yes, businesses, especially on Schedule C's, which is you know part of your individual tax return, those do have the highest audit rate out of all businesses. There's no doubt. It's still relatively low. You know, not all Schedule C businesses are being audited, but it's much higher than the rest. That wouldn't prevent me from having someone file a Schedule C. It would just mean we need to make sure there's documentation and you have the correct deductions because when the IRS comes, if you're prepared for it, the audit's generally pretty easy. I mean, really, they want to see, are these real deductions? Did you do the calculations correct? Do you have supporting invoices, things like that? Did you report all your income? And you should have and be reporting all your income anyway. So the audit shouldn't be too much of a concern. You just need to have, have that audit folder, so to speak, available. And it's a breeze, but I, and I would say you do want to be careful on if you're going to choose expenses to be more conservative on, then those would be your auto deductions, your meals and your trap. Those are going to be more highly scrutinized by the IRS than others. I'm not saying don't take them. I'm saying have them substantiated very well and airtight so that when you're audited, you have your bases covered especially if those ones are high, because that's, that's what they're picking a lot to look into. All right, one last question, man, because I know I want to respect for your time here. When you say Schedule C businesses, what are they? Yeah, so that, that would be basically when there's one owner. So generally, you'd call it a sole proprietorship. Sole proprietorship would be one where there is no legal entity. So it could just be, I start a business and I call it Eric Freeman Business, and I start selling whatever product that's reported on a Schedule C. It could also be, I do the same thing, but then I start an LLC, Eric Freeman LLC, 
and I'm doing the same service or selling the same goods, that's reported on on a Schedule C business. Yeah, so it's essentially, again, I think they come back to the same thing. Just because you have an LLC doesn't mean you're not on Schedule C anymore, right? So I think if it's a single member LLC, you're always going to be on Schedule C. A sole proprietor has a similar access to deductions as an LLC, which is disregarded. I, now, when I, it's such a broad topic, so I want to leave it at that because otherwise we're going to open up another 30-minute conversation and this podcast is going to become a four-hour conversation. So we don't want to do that. So I think this is the goal for this podcast was to get insight from Eric on how he's working with wealthy individuals like Ken McElroy. We're using similar strategies. Now, they all we all st- our starting points are, but our end goal is to not make $50,000. That's not the goal. The goal is to make a lot of money, but also do it in a way that's more tax efficient. So we really wanted to give you a broad stroke picture of that. Uh, I know this is not the first time we brought a CPA, but the way Eric explained it was very different than the other CPAs in the past. So you want to take a look at that and and kind of figure out what your strategy could be. Eric, where can people find you, buddy, if they want to look at you, look at more work from you, for you, and maybe get connected with you? Yeah. So you can, you can find me on pretty much all the social media platforms at Eric Freeman CPA. So that's Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, TikTok, all of those. I'm also on Ken McElroy's YouTube channel. So Ken McElroy, you know, YouTube slash Ken McElroy. And I've got on all of those, I have a lot of tax education videos, just basically free content if you're interested in that. And then if you're looking more for CPA services, then our website. So my firm is beachfleischman.com and we have a website and all the, you know, Instagram and everything also. So you can reach out to me through there if you're looking for that. Awesome. Eric, thank you again for your time, buddy. I know you're busy. So I appreciate this. And I always say that for you to say yes to this show, yet to say no to something else. So I really appreciate that. Thank you again for all the insights and thank you for all the audience. If you're listening to this part specifically, that means you stayed through the entire podcast. And I really value the time you're spending. But hopefully you learned something out of it and you're going to be able to draw some actionable insights and take the next step and listen to Eric. Listen to people like Eric. That's how I have developed my own tax strategies. And I'm helping, I'm using the same tax strategies to help my investors. So unless you learn it, you owe it to yourself to learn these strategies. You don't have to write your own, you don't have to file your own taxes, but you need to ask your CPA intelligent question. Hopefully if your CPA is like Eric, he would help you ask those questions and he'll probably ask those questions to you any. But if you don't have someone like Eric on your team and you want to work with your CPA, that's great. But ask them intelligent questions. And the only way to ask intelligent questions is to know a little bit more about uh, what questions to really ask. With that note, thank you again, Eric. And thank you again, all my listeners. I will see you on the next episode. And Eric, we will do a webinar with you. If you're open to that, we'll, we'll figure out offline if that's a possibility. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.